hand, the descendants of Cain, representing the advance of sin. And on the other hand, the descendants of Seth, this other child born to Adam and Eve, representing the advance of God's sovereign grace. And remember, we've seen almost every week in our studies in Genesis that a large part of the narrative's purpose, part of what the Bible is doing to us as we read it and study it, is helping us to understand that its story is our story. This story of the Bible, though it happened thousands and thousands of years ago and is a different culture and a different language and seems so removed from our own concerns, actually tells us something very important about ourselves. And it tells us something very important about God. And really the question that's being asked of every one of you this morning is what is advancing in your life? What's advancing in your life? Is it sin or is it grace? Which heritage are you a part of? The heritage of sin and curse or the heritage of grace and blessing? And how can you experience grace in your life even in the middle of all of your mess? The story points us towards answers. And so I want to summarize the main idea very simply. Here's the main idea. Where sin advances, grace advances all the more. And so I want to break these verses down into two parts. The advance of sin on the one hand. And secondly, the advance of grace. So first, let's look at the advance of sin. That's one thing these verses portray for us. Now, Genesis has very vividly depicted already how sin impacts our relationships with God and how sin impacts our relationships with one another. And today we see the advance of sin in that in these verses, it moves into cultures and into families and into structures. And I want to show you three ways in which these verses depict the advance of sin. First, we see that the sin advances in this city that Cain and his son build. Look at verse 17. There we read, Cain had another child with his wife, Enoch, and they built a city together. They built a city together, and they called the name of the city after Cain's son Enoch. So we can call it Enochville. This is Enochville. And when we read about cities in Genesis, by the way, it's almost always associated with bad things. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. That's bad, by the way. That's, there's a little preview for you. And a few chapters after the Tower of Babel, we read about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's also bad. And so we have good reason to believe that a city being built here by Cain is also going to be a bad deal. It's bad. It shows how far Cain has wandered. Now, remember that last week God cursed Cain because he murdered his brother Abel. And one of the consequences of Cain's sin was that he was to be a nomad. He was to be a wanderer on the earth. But what do we see Cain doing here? We see him settling down. We see him building a city. And I think we can read this as a refusal on Cain's part to be a wanderer anymore, to live a nomadic existence. He settles down and he builds a city, and then he names the city after his own son. Now, that is very telling. Last week, we saw that names in Genesis carry a lot of meaning. We're going to see that again this morning. Names are important. Listen to what Meredith Klein, a commentator on the Old Testament, writes. The very name of the city was a reminder of its inner spirit of autonomy passed on from its founding father to its ruling dynasty.
Cain dedicated the city to himself in naming it Enoch after his son. So what you see in Cain naming the city after himself is Cain's self-serving heart at work. You know, it's kind of like if we had named Christ Church St. Luke Presbyterian Church. That has a nice ring to it, actually, now that I think about it. Probably wouldn't have been the best idea. A little bit self-serving to name the church after me. And that's exactly how we're to read this. It's a little bit self-serving to name the city after yourself. It's one of the sort of hinted ways that we see the advance of sin. Secondly, the advance of sin is more prevalent in the family of this guy, Lamech. Look in verses 19, 23, 24. Now, Lamech is one of the sons of Cain that's mentioned. He's likely one of the rulers of Enochville. He's one of the kings. And the story tells us that Lamech is two things. First, he's oppressive. And second, he is violent. We see that he's oppressive through his practice of polygamy. Now, this is the first time in the Bible we read about polygamy. We read that Cain took, not Cain, Lamech took two wives, verse 19. Now, you might have noticed that this isn't explicitly condemned. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know polygamy happens all the time in the Old Testament, and it's very infrequently condemned explicitly. But I want you to see that the story itself condemns the practice. Robert Alter was a Jewish scholar of the Old Testament, and he says that one of the main subtexts, one of the main things going on just beneath the surface of Genesis is the idea that polygamy is basically a complete disaster. Every time you see it in the story of Genesis, it leads to really, really, really devastating and negative consequences for those involved. And it's particularly bad in that it's oppressive towards the wives. This polygamy was a thing where, you might imagine in an ancient culture, the husband did whatever he wanted with all of the wives that he wanted. It's oppressive. It's tyrannical. Polygamy would be bad for the wives. It's also bad for the men, by the way. Um, It's just a bad deal. It's one of the ways we see Lamech being oppressive. We also see that Lamech is violent. You see that in the song that he sings there in verses 23 and 24. Basically, he's singing this song to his wives and he's bragging. You'll notice there. He's boasting about killing a young man. Now, that word there, a young man, really it's like the word for a boy. This is like a 12-year-old boy. And so what Lamech is saying is basically this. If a boy even scratches me, I am going to crush him. And he's proud of it. He's boasting in his violent spirit. And then he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, my revenge is 77fold. Now that Number seven in the Old Testament is a symbolic number. It represents perfection. And so Lamech here is basically saying, I'm never going to give up vengeance. I'm never going to forgive anyone for wounding me ever. So Cain's children, the kings and the rulers of these very early cities of the world, they led oppressive and tyrannical and violent regimes. That's the idea. Sin is advancing into cultures, into systems, into governments. Thirdly, we see sin advance in these very strange verses in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in the interaction of what the author calls the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, these are weird verses. And there's a lot of different interpretations of what exactly these verses mean. And they've generated a lot of confusion. 
I think the best way to understand them is to see the sons of God as a reference to these early kings of the world, to people like Lamech. And to see that the sons of God, the kings, the rulers of the land, take as their wives any they chose. In other words, these were the ancient kings ruling in the line of Cain, and they are using their positions of power not to administer justice and to care for the needy, but to act in an exploitative way to acquire power and to reign in terror and to fill the earth with violence. And they produced sort of the ancient warriors and rulers of the world, the mighty men of renown, we read in verse 4. But the overarching point is that these days were incredibly and increasingly evil. They were evil. So much so that in verse 6, God says he's sorry that he made man on the earth because every intention... Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. In fact, God cuts the day short in verse 3. He says, I can't take this anymore. In 120 years, I'm going to send a flood. We're going to talk about that next week. So these verses tell us how significantly in the early days of our world, sin advanced. It's the story of the world's greatest pre-flood civilizations and cultures living entirely apart from God. It tells us about the reign of terror, the culture of oppression and death that mired the world in almost complete godlessness in those days. So what does that have to do with you? There's a couple of things we learn from these verses, archaic though they seem. The first thing we learn is what sin is really like. We see this almost every week in Genesis, and we've said that sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is a transfer of our allegiance. It's a transfer of our allegiance from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of self. Martin Luther, the great reformer, defined sin as man curved in upon himself. Man curved in upon himself. And what he means by that is that the Bible defines sin as a relentless self-focus. As always choosing yourself over God. And what this means for you is that sin determines that even when we externally do really good, seemingly kind things, at the end of the day, really, it's all about us still. I was just uh, reading an article on online this week about an NBA player, basketball, professional basketball player that will remain unnamed, that um, has this charitable organization. And one of the things that his charity does is every Christmas, he goes to the poorest neighborhoods in the city in which he plays, and he delivers a bunch of gifts. He brings like a semi-truck, right? A Mack truck full of presents and just delivers them almost randomly to the kids in the neighborhood. But you know what else he does? Every time he does this, he takes a full camera crew with him. He takes a camera crew with him and makes sure that there's a press release and that it's going to get on Sports Center and that everyone knows about it. Because at the end of the day, to some degree or another, the charitable organization isn't so much about the kids, it's more about him. And that's really what sin does to all of us. That's what sin does to all of us. We relate to God and to others only to the degree that it furthers our agenda. So when we serve the poor, or when we go to church, or when we, when we make good friends, we do so for ourselves. 
not for God and not for others. And we know that because when those relationships become costly, we're out, right? When those relationships become costly, we're out. Because even though it looks like we're serving God and others, we're actually serving ourselves. That's what we see that sin does. That's the spirit of Cain and the spirit of Cain's city. He's curved in upon himself. And sin does that to all of us as well. That's one thing we can learn. Another thing we can learn a little more broadly is this. The story of Genesis and Christianity as a whole offers what I think is a very compelling explanation for why there's so much evil in the world at all. Have you ever thought about that? You know, if you're not a Christian, that might be one of the main reasons you struggle with Christianity. Uh, The the so-called problem of evil. It's this idea that if God is all good, right, and if he's also all powerful, if that God really exists, then why are things so terrible in so many parts of the world and in so many areas of my life? That's the problem of evil. And let me tell you, that is a problem. I mean, just to be honest, that's a problem. That's a hard question to answer. But I would also argue that it's not just a problem for Christians, The problem of evil, actually, I think, is a bigger problem for non-Christians than it is for Christians. It's a bigger problem for non-Christians because it's hard to explain why this world is oftentimes so bad if you don't believe in the Christian God. Let me put it this way. I think that Christianity alone takes the reality of evil seriously enough. That's part of what we see in this story. Think about it like this. How can someone... How can someone who believes that man is really basically pretty good, who believes that man is really basically pretty good and that things are actually getting a little bit better and better, how can someone who believes that explain the Holocaust? How can someone who believes that explain apartheid or a church in Sutherland Springs, not far from here, being shot up by a crazy person? One of my favorite authors is a guy named Cormac McCarthy. Some of you might have heard of him. He's not for the faint of heart. If you want to read some of his novels and his masterpiece is a book called Blood Meridian. And a Blood Meridian is about a gang of thieves that travel around the American Southwest marauding and stealing and plundering. And what McCarthy is doing through telling this story is actually asking the question of the reader, do you really have a good explanation for why things are as bad as they are? So it's kind of a dark story. And the leader of this marauding gang of thieves is a man named the judge. And the judge is like the archetype of evil in the story. And these thieves, when they're sitting around the campfire at night, will often get into these philosophical discussions about why they're doing what they're doing. And the judge represents the position that we should take as much power and acquire as much through theft as we can because there is no God, basically. At one point, he says this, if God meant to interfere in the degeneracy of mankind, wouldn't he have done so by now? Wolves call themselves man. What other creature could? And is the race of man not more predacious yet? The point that McCarthy's making is that it's really hard to adequately explain why things are as bad as they are. And I want to argue that only the story of Christianity can do that adequately. This story says things really are that bad. God really does in Genesis 6 say, man, everyone's thoughts are only evil all the time. Christianity alone takes evil seriously enough. And I actually think that's a reason to consider it seriously in your faith commitments. 
And Christianity alone has an answer for evil that is powerful enough to quench it forever. Let's look at that secondly. We see the advance of sin. We see it in three ways, but we also see the advance of grace, the advance of blessing in this story. Even in the middle of darkness, right? Even in the middle of expanding evil, we see God's redemptive mercy at work. We see grace abounding all the more where sin abounds. Like we saw three ways that sin advances, I want to show you quickly three ways that grace advances in this story. First, we see the advance of grace in the birth of Seth and Eve's understanding of it. Now, remember last week, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And really, Genesis gives us pretty much no insight into what Adam and Eve, the parents, think about that. But you can imagine, right? You can imagine how painful it must have been for Adam and Eve to walk through that together. And we see here what God does for them in response. He provides another son to help heal the wound left by Cain. And they name the boy Seth. We read in verse 25. And Eve explains her naming of Seth. She says, she called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, Seth sounds just like the Hebrew word for appointed. So why would the author include that? I mean, why does that seemingly random fact matter? Well, here's what we're seeing here. Eve has learned something. Eve has learned something that the narrative teaches us through what she names her children. She named Cain in verse 1 and says, I have acquired a son. I. I have acquired a son. God helped, but I have acquired him. But after Cain murders Abel and is exiled into the wilderness, she has another child, names him Seth, and says, God, God has appointed for me a son. What does that mean? It means that Eve is learning that she cannot provide her own deliverance. She thought that Cain was the deliverer, but now she understands and believes that only God, only God can deliver. What we see in Eve's naming of these children is that sin causes us to begin with self. But grace changes that. Grace enables us to see that all good things come from God. And guess what? That's one of the main signs in which you can see that grace is advancing in your life. How do you know if grace is advancing in your life? Well, you know if, the, if you can readily see and admit that any of the progress you're making, any blessing you're experiencing, any victory you're winning... Any of that is a result of God's provision for you and not a result of your own work. This week I was uh, hanging out at a dining establishment that I frequent uh, during the weeks and I was sitting there and I came across a friend that I haven't seen in a couple of years. This guy's name is Billy and uh, he lives in my neighborhood and he's a guy that I've seen and talked to a lot at this restaurant over the years. And uh, we've had a lot of conversations about what it means to be a Christian and about the gospel and about life. And uh, I hadn't seen Billy in a couple of years because uh, he's a guy that struggled with addiction to painkillers. Billy was a, a professional motocross racer. He was a biker. 
and uh, had a lot of success, but also, as you might expect, had a lot of physical injuries. So when he retired, he got addicted to painkillers. And I would often see him a number of years ago, and he would just sort of have glossy eyes and seem to be a little bit out of it. And we would talk very openly about his struggles with addiction. He wasn't able to get through it. He wasn't able to overcome it. And then he just disappeared. And I saw him for the first time in two years this week. And I was like, dude, where have you been? What's been going on? And he said that he had uh, been in Colorado for two years. So I guess the point is Colorado has a healing power. Uh, He had been in Colorado for two years, and he just seemed so much more lucid and aware and clear in his thinking. And I said, man, how how are things going? And he said, Luke, you're not going to believe this, but I'm clean, man. And I've been clean for some time now. And I said, well, what happened? And he told me, I finally had to hit rock bottom. And I actually went to church one week. And the pastor, I was telling the pastor, hey, I'm really struggling with this. And the pastor said, well, it's because you haven't yet come to the end of yourself. You think you can fix yourself. And I was like, man, I'm going to steal that quote. That's great advice from that pastor. And Billy just seemed to be doing so much better. And as I was thinking about my conversation with him and this sermon, it just struck me that that's a sign of God's grace. When you can attribute, finally, any successes that you experience, not to your own efforts, but to God's grace. That's one way you know the advance of grace is happening in your story. And that's one thing we see in this text. Another thing, secondly, in which we see the advance of grace is in Seth's humble self-awareness. Look in verse 26. So Seth is born to Adam and Eve. And then in verse 26, we read to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. There's a recommended name for you young families if you want to have a child. Enosh, there's a good one. And uh, like we've said already, uh, names matter a lot in Genesis. Cain's name matters. Abel's name matters. E's name matters. And Enosh's name matters too. Guess what Enosh means? Frail one. Weak one. Maybe you shouldn't name your child that. It means mortal. It means weak one. What do we see here? We see that Seth... Instead of bragging about himself and his accomplishments like Lamech does and like Cain does, attributes weakness to himself and his family. We see Seth demonstrate remarkable self-awareness. We see him demonstrate his need and humility. And really the contrast between Seth and Lamech, Seth's humility and Lamech's pride is very instructive. Listen to what James Boyce writes. He says, Lamech is the epitome of the self-sufficient man. He can take care of himself. He does not need God. The line of Seth has a far lower view of mankind. It precedes his weakness. Is grace advancing in your life? One way to know is when you attribute good things that are happening to God. And another way to know is if you get your own neediness. Do you get that? Can you see your own need? Can you see that you are Enosh? Can you perceive your own weakness? Have you considered the gravity of sin and the depths of your own brokenness? Because those, friends, are prerequisites. They're prerequisites for experiencing, in a real and profound way, the grace of God. I love what my hero, C.S. Lewis, writes about pride and humility in mere Christianity. Listen to him. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, 
and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You see the advance of grace in this story and in your life when you know that good things come from God and when you know your need. And then lastly, as we close up here, you see the advance of grace in God preserving a family for himself. Look back in the story, verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That is, they began to worship God. People began to seek God's face, to look to God for forgiveness and for mercy. So who are these people? Well, they're the children of Seth. They're the people that we read about in this genealogy in Genesis 5. And the point is that grace is advancing. God is working his grace through, listen, through families. God is going to be faithful to the promise that he made to Eve that from her children, some child is going to come and end the curse of sin and crush the head of the devil. And to fulfill that promise, God had to preserve for himself a remnant of faithful people in a world that was increasingly wicked. And that's what he does here. And that's what he still does. These verses are essential because they track for us the progression of God's grace. They track for us the progression of God's promise all the way to the child who was to come, Jesus. Jesus is the final son of Adam and Eve who actually does crush the head of the serpent. You know, it's worth mentioning just for a second that God still works through families. That's one of the things we learn here. I just want to say that that's worth celebrating if that is your story. If you know God's grace, if you came to faith in Jesus because your parents were believers and your parents faithfully loved you and prayed for you and tried their best to teach you the gospel, even though they were sinners as well. And if they took you to church and if they introduced you to the good news of Jesus, then praise God. That is, that is the best kind of testimony. That's a sign of God's grace coming down to you through the generations. You know, that's my story. And I hope that'll be the story for our many children here at Christ Church. So we see, to summarize, the advancement of sin in this story, and we see the advancement of grace in this story. Sin is abounding. The flood is coming. But in the middle of it, grace is abounding all the more. And so the question for you, as we finish up, again, is very simple. Which story are you a part of? Which advance is happening in your life? Are you caught up in the advance of sin? You know, does everything revolve around you and your ambition? Are you full of oppression and violence like Lamech? Do you seek revenge? Do you crave worldly power? Listen, this story tells you that those things only lead to death. They only lead to separation from the God of life. Or are you caught in the advance of grace? Are you able to see the mercies of God in your life more and more? Do you increasingly have a sense of your own need and the profundity of your own guilt before God? Can you track the lineage of God's love for you through your story? That's the question. So ask yourself that question and then answer it honestly. 
Because here's the truth. The lineage of God's love can begin in your life today. You can enter the stream of God's grace because he has made a way for forgiveness of sin, all sin, through sending his son Jesus into the world. Jesus came to take upon himself, free of charge, all of the guilt that we incur against God, and then to give to us, free of charge, all the righteousness that he earned before God. And the way to receive that forgiveness and to receive that righteousness is not by trying to pull yourself together. It's by seeing that Jesus has done it for you already. That's the way to get into the line of grace. It's a way to begin to experience the transformation that we all long for and that we all need. I was listening to a random kind of Spotify playlist uh, this weekend, yesterday, and an old Cademan's, Cademan's Call song came on that I hadn't heard in years. And so if you grew up, like, in, if you were, I was in college in the 90s, and Cademan's Call was a big deal. They're a Christian band that used to be around, and they have a song called Lead of Love, and uh, that song came on, and I thought that the lines of that song resonated with the message of this sermon. So I just want to read you the first part of the song as we conclude. Listen to what they say. When I look at the road so far, the trail has left its share of scars, mostly from leaving the narrow and straight. When I look, it is clear to me a man is more than the sum of his deeds. And how you, God, how you make good of this mess I've made is a profound mystery. And really, that's the point of Genesis 4 and 6. And that's the point of our lives, is to see that even in the mess that we make, God, in a profoundly mysterious way, shows us and dispenses to us his grace through Jesus. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. May it be the case in our lives. Let's pray.